0: Welcome to The Car Show, R.M. Sotheby's Car Show, to another episode. Uh, I'm in Richmond, in R.M. Sotheby's HQ, in the library, and I'm sitting in a very comfortable leather chair next to Peter Warman, uh, who is often joining me for these uh, episodes, uh, chairman of R.M. Sotheby's Europe. And I'm also joined by uh, James Elliott, uh, who is our guest today, editor of Octane magazine. Welcome, James. Thank you for coming all the way to Richmond on a bus, because there's a train strike today, isn't there? There is. And you've come here and you're looking quite, you know, fresh faced. You don't look like you've been out drinking too much alcohol. Uh, which <laughs> I'm, just gonna ta- ta- I'm just going to turn in this direction and speak to my colleague, Peter Warman, And uh, do you want to tell the audience what time you went to bed? Not yesterday, this morning.
1: Well, as you know, Peter, I always am um, tucked up in bed at 11 pm at the very latest. So why would yesterday have been any exception to right. that?
0: I can promise you that he did not go to bed at 11pm last night, it was, uh, I think he went to bed about four hours ago and he's got up to come and do this recording and we actually, I mean, we it's worth saying it was the RM Sotheby's uh, Christmas party, one too many alcoholic beverages may have been consumed. But anyway, we're going to move on from that but I'm just mentioning it because I think it's important that people cut us a bit of slack in this episode. And if Pete, because we're, we're a little bit fearful that Peter might fall asleep, and uh, I'm going to ask him a question and you're not going to respond. No, no change there, then. <laughs> <laughs> How do I respond to that? <laughs> um, so, look, uh, let's get into the conversation with James because, James, I, I tell you what, I, this is where I'm going to start with this conversation. Cool. You are editor of Octane. Now, Octane is a very well respected. Magazine that's been around. How long has Octane been around? I was going to guess, but you probably know. Go on, have a guess.
1: Ooh,
0: I'm going to say twenty years. Yeah, I'm going to. I reckon probably a bit more. Twenty-five. Twenty years
2: next year. So I'm sure there will be lots of amazing anniversary stuff. Even more good reasons to buy Octane next year. But 2003, it was founded by a bunch of uh, refugees from what was then EMAP who were working on classic cars and various other titles who thought they could go off and do something more interesting and better as, as true enthusiasts. They set up Octane in 2003, uh, ran it independently for a good few years and it was taken over by uh, Dennis Publishing which also took over Evo so you could sort of see the thrust of its acquisitions at that point and then uh, two of those founders are still with us, or still with, well, no, they're all still with us, we haven't said no one's died, um, but two of them are still with Octane in uh, founder editor Robert Kutcher, who has been a legend in the industry, as you'll know, and anyone from the trade will of course know Sanjay Satana, who's our advertising director and remains so today. And And the magazine is now, Dennis has sort of changed we're now part of a company called Autovia, which is a sort of subset of what used to be Dennis and uh, going from strengths to
0: strength, I hope. And uh, we f- would have first met a long time ago when you were at Classic and Sports Car and yep. um, you know w- a- another very strong title within this space but and and I think that's something that I just wanted to touch on with you in this conversation because there's no doubt that the UK classic car media, let's call it that, mm-hmm. is probably the strongest in Europe, isn't it? In terms of the quality of the, the publications. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of great magazines around Europe, but... I'd say in well, the world. I think possibly the world, yeah. I, and it, I mean, do you agree, I and if you, get you do, so much trouble. If you, <laughs> why do you think that might be the case? Yes of course I
2: agree. <laughs> um, on a more serious note, I look at the American classic car press, and for some reason, you know, there, a lot of people have thrown a lot of good money at various magazines over the years in trying to establish them, and they just don't seem to have taken hold on their own ground, as even the European magazines have mm. over there. I think the the British magazines are quite ubiquitous. You know, it helps that we've got English, which is a, a common language wherever we go. We have. Um, licensed editions in Germany and in France and in Japan um, and in the Netherlands and they are licensed versions of Octane and there are licensed versions of other magazines yet The Mothership always seems to be the British grown title. You could say that for the industry in the whole. It's not belittling in any way the German classic car industry or world or hobby. You look at people like uh, Keenly or HK Engineering or whatever. Phenomenal world-class companies. But I don't think anyone, certainly in Europe, would argue against Britain being the fulcrum for the classic car world, for whether that be the trade, the media, the collectors or
0: whatever. Mm, and
2: that's a good point. It just seems to have always been the way.
0: I mean, there are some incredible magazines in countries like Japan in terms of the production values. Oh I mean, God, I, yeah, you, I'm you, so you, jealous. You, yeah, you, yeah. you know, you, I, in particular Japan, you look at the quality of the artwork and the photography and the just the paper stock they use and everything else. Um, never seen anything quite like it really. But that aside, what we what is done in the UK generally is done just the look and the feel, ignoring the actual content, the written content, just the look and the feel and the design work that goes into UK publications Mm -hmm. does seem to be at a level above pretty much anything else I see around, uh, which is interesting as well, isn't it? I think think there's two reasons. Uh, the,
2: The first would be that we've got a longer established tradition of specifically niche classic car magazines. If you think that Thoroughbred and classic car actually launched in 73 Um, classic and sports car came along in 82 um, and that makes octane a a sort of a relatively new newcomer and then since then we've had some quarterlies launch as well Mm. it's a very very mature market here and um, we've had a long time to work out what people want and if you look at the whole market if you look at practical classics practical classics as as a commercial force is absolutely formidable And so we've got the whole market covered with with a variety of titles. As I say, it's matured, those titles have developed, new titles have launched to fill in any gaps within the market, and it's highly competitive. Mm. And Mm. if you look at the value for money, I mean, (laughs) Readers never write to me and say how amazingly cheap the product is for what they're (laughs) getting. But if you go into a newsagent and you think that you're getting a classic car magazine of maybe 200 to 250 pages of that quality, and it's between 5 and £6 on the whole, that would cover most of the market, pick up some other magazines for other hobbies and see what you get for that kind of money. And that makes all the classic car magazines, not just Octane, look remarkably good value for. For the, the skill the professionalism and the production values that go into
0: them it, it, a lot of what you've just been saying it, it also sort of taps into this thing that as a hobby the classic car world is extraordinarily well catered for but but it it, it, it does stand <coughs> alone from so many other areas um, of of collecting uh, mm. in the sense that it is there are you know walk into a big W H Smiths in the UK <laughs> yep. and there's just sort of walls of of magazines serving you know the car enthusiast market you know yep. whether they're niche magazines that focus on one mark or you know Porsches or MGs or whatever mm-hmm. um, or the more generalist but it's it's a huge scene isn't it and and yeah. and what's quite encouraging is that. In an increasingly digital world where people seem to um, sit on the train these days and scroll through their phones and their iPads, uh, people still seem to want to pick up a, uh, a nicely bound bundle of paper and sit at home in a comfy chair and read it. Oh, God, long may that continue.
2: Um, yeah. I'm in big trouble when they stop wanting to do that. Luckily, yeah. you know, it's not just the nostalgia industry, the nostalgia industry is sort of like our secondary um, market. The, the initial market is the people who aren't nostalgic. They just like things a certain way because that's how they think they're right. And whether that's you know fifty sports car driving a fifty sports car on crossplies, which I think we'll all agree, is the best possible way to drive a drive a sports car, and, and trumps anything that comes afterwards, in the right weather. Um, a print magazine is a different experience. I my one of my other big loves is music. I've got a huge vinyl record collection. And it's the same thing, you can't pick up a CD or stream. If you can't stream and get the same experience that you can get from a vinyl record where you've got a cover to read with cover notes, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. it's a gatefold, maybe it does something clever like sort of Led Zeppelin 3 or whatever, you know, there's much more to it. It's an emotional experience, it's an involving and engaging experience. And that's why I think people are attracted to classic cars above modern cars. And I think that's why people are attracted to classic car magazines Mm. and to print in particular, because it is more involving and more engaging. It's something you can sort of dive into and luxuriate in, which you can't do to the same degree on a Kindle or an iPad.
1: Well I think James, that they all have this common thread which is they're free of distraction. You pick up a magazine, your focal point is the magazine, you pick up a vinyl record and you put it on your turntable, your focal point is the music that you're playing on the turntable. You get into a classic car, you don't have the distraction of all sorts of whistles and bells and you know no. full media service on your screen no, yeah. you, you're, you're focused on your steering wheel your clutch pedal and your gear stick and hopefully an accelerator and brake occasionally getting home. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just yeah. a question of full focus and i think yeah. that's really important and i think when you when you enter into the digital world and the, the digital age it, you, you know we have this sort of mind-blowing capacity of information mm. and things being thrown at you But it's full of distraction at the same time. Pick up a magazine, you sit in the comfy chair, as you say, Peter, and you read a magazine. And that's what you're doing for that 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it may be. I mean, I know the
0: three of us are men of a certain age, um, shall we say, being kind to ourselves. Um, and, And so, you know, there might be people listening to this podcast saying, well, yeah, they're bound to say that. Elderly chaps like that, you know, yeah. if they were 25, they'd be consuming everything on an iPad. But I'm not actually sure that's true. I've got a, an eldest son that loves music. Actually, doesn't really love cars, which is a bit unfortunate. But he loves music, and um, you know, he buys all the music magazines. You know, he's, right. he, he's 18, hmm. so he's he hasn't checked out of buying print magazines in any shape or form. Yeah, that's what I say. The nostalgia market. the, the younger people who are
2: getting into the magazines. Because of the, you know, it used to be a lifestyle thing. And there is an element of lifestyle to it. You go to some events and it's unquestionably lifestyle in that it's about the dressing up and it's about having a car that you possibly use once a year to go to that event and back mm-hmm. again. You load it up with a pile of uh, friends and, and you, you drive down to Sussex or wherever. It could be anywhere. I'm not mentioning any specific events. but. That's the lifestyle market, but there is also the nostalgia market and that's very much a son. And for the print magazines, you know, that that's our second wind as such. That's the bit that defies the argument that says that print is dying or print is dead and that it will disappear in ten years regardless. They haven't counted on the fact that my nephew is just as big a vinyl collector as I am. And and he's twenty-five and you know, he's gonna carry on that demand for another generation. So the sort of all these predictions of the inevitable demise of the print magazine market, especially in the classic car field, which is, inev- you know, by its very definition, looking backwards anyway, will keep us going for another generation. That's great because I would hate to think that the gentlemen of a certain age like us, it will see us out. We can all go off and sort of retire into the sunset or whatever, and then mm. the whole thing dies with us. That would be terrible. Because, you know, we're genuine enthusiasts. The whole point for us is, is for this to carry on and on and on. And I think that's the biggest development in the past five or 10 years, when you get these charities like Starter Motor and you get sort of the Heritage Skills Trust. And they are training these kids up to work on these cars and want to have these cards and own these cars in the future. And it's really forward thinking stuff. And, it, you know, it, it makes me sleep well at night, knowing that when we stop or when we move on or, or when we retire or whatever, that it doesn't all dissipate and disappear and there will be another generation to sort of take the baton on and that's
1: great I think the point as well though is I mean we're sitting in the library and there's some really quite significant uh, tomes uh, in, in, in the motoring world that you know document the history of particular motor yeah. cars, particular marks and I think the point about print which I think is uh, very valid is once it is committed, you know, you're a journalist Peter mm. You've been a journalist yourself once it's committed to print. It's committed to print There's no yeah. sort of let's correct that tomorrow online and forget about it and hope yeah. not too many people have seen it You can't hide behind that and it's the same in you know <laughs> uh, a, a newspaper yeah, You know exactly. you can read what you want to read on Twitter But if it's in the Telegraph or it's in the mirror or whatever newspaper is, is your choice um, it's there, it's committed to print, and that's it. And, and I think the editorial quality for that reason has to be that much better and stricter. You have to be a lot more careful about what you write and what you say, let's yeah. print, um, which off, you right, don't yeah. have that in the digital world because you can correct it well, ongoing.
2: You've just given me a terrible
0: sense of responsibility that I didn't have before I came <laughs> into this room. Yes, no, well, and it's a very telling thing. As an auction house, we, ha- the, we don't have this um, library for its aesthetic qualities, this library... More people it- like you. <laughs> I can't read. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, drama, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> certainly not here for my aesthetic qualities. Uh, after last night, anyway. As I was saying, uh, the, the library here is actually, this is a tool, because we are consigning cars, we write catalogue descriptions, We need accurate information. Now, you can go onto the internet. You want to research a 2.9 alpha. You can you can go and Google stuff and read it. But actually, you're going to pick up Simon Moore's book. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you're going to get the information because you know a publication like that has got. You know, decades of experience and huge
1: amounts of research that has gone into its creation. And it's a responsibility. To press go, print, that's a responsibility that you have to stand behind. Your name is on the spine and you have to say, I've committed my information to that book, let's go.
2: And some of Um, these books are still the absolute... If you look, I saw you had Ronnie Spain's GT40 book up mm. there. And if you look, I'm sure somewhere you've got the Andrew White Jaguar D-Type book and his others. Those books are still the standard by which you judge it. I mean, and how old are they now? 30, 40 years? And yet, if I was going to do a feature on a D-Type, or if you were consigning a D-Type, the first place you're going to go is Andrew White. Mm.
1: And then you're going to get
2: an honest, warts and all, history of the car up until the point you wrote that book,
1: whatever you're being told now. Well, I think in many respects, it's the same responsibility we carry into producing an auction catalogue. You know, there's a point at which you say you're committing that to print and you have to be as secure in the information that you go to print with as you possibly can be, based on books, based on research. We have a complete, you know, full research department here. Not everything is completely factual. A lot of this stuff is based on people's memory. There's
2: a sense of jeopardy for you as well, isn't there? I mean, if you misrepresent a car on a catalogue description and somebody spends a couple of million quid on it
1: and then finds out
2: it doesn't live up to that description... Yeah, I'm not in your trade. I, I I don't know exactly what happens, but I imagine that's pretty awkward.
1: Yeah, and no, absolutely. It's a big responsibility to go, go, to go to print with a with an auction catalog, and, mm. and obviously, you know, we do our <coughs> our very best to do mm. the, the the fullest possible research we can. But yeah. you know, that's not to say that things haven't changed over a period of time. People's memories may have had some inaccuracies and we you know we, yeah. we, we we, are guided by what's been committed to print in books more yeah. than you know just googling it and uh, see so, you know we can stand behind this we can say yeah. this was committed to print by so and so the author of this book and to the best of our knowledge that's what is considered correct um, see i can't
2: i can't speak for the solely digital outlets i don't know what level of research they do or where they do their research but what i do know is we still you know we still talk to people a massive part of our research is picking up the phone and talking to people who were personally involved and even now you know there may be a car or a type of car that's been featured many many times in the print magazines it's likely that if it's been done properly you'll still be getting new information even now whether from somebody who was involved in the car maybe fettled the car and that's great that
0: we're still turning up new stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to, oh, can you think, can you remember back to 15-year-old James?
2: I'm better at remembering 15-year-old James <laughs> than yesterday, James, to be
0: So, honest. have you ever been anything other than a car journalist? See, I'd knock, I mean, what Yes. We, you have. Okay, okay. But did, so 15-year-old James, did he want to be a journalist? 15-year-old James had no idea. 15-year-old James just wanted to
2: chase girls, drink beer and play rugby. Fine. He, he had some that. hobbies. He liked cars, but it was... My car thing really, it, it's a bit odd because I, I did adore cars, there were certain cars I really liked and quite a lot of them weren't Canon at all. I, I liked the, the wedge Ferrari saloons um, much more than I liked any of the stuff which now is much more valuable. I liked Jensen Interceptors. I liked cars, I knew what they all were but I wasn't fixated and obsessed with them until I passed my driving test mm. and at that point when they took took on a different status for me. I, mean, I know a lot of people were much more into cars as kids than I ever was, but
0: for me it was that passing my driving test changed everything. It was, your, was, it, was there anything in the family, like did your dad love cars that were not so much? Dad had what I thought were relatively
2: nice cars. He, he had a very early Audi 80s first generation with a sort of waterfall yeah, heating yeah. system, yeah. Um, which were quite... Odd cars to see in the UK at the time, and then he moved on to Jaguars, and he had a well, <laughs> for my dad it had to be Daimlers, um, so he had Jaguars dressed up as Daimlers for a long time, and then he had a, a couple of XJSs, and he had nice cars, but he wasn't massively involved. One of my grandfathers worked in the motor industry in Coventry. He he didn't have particularly nice cars, but he was an engineer. He had been out in India and had set up the um, Hindustan production line pre Ambassador.
1: Right. Okay.
2: Um, as, as his job, and sadly he died before I got to talk to him a huge amount about, about his background. In it. there is a history, but I wouldn't say it's had any bearing on my involvement. I was just in a gang of friends who loved them. I had friends who had all sorts of terrible Land Rovers uh, that we used to bomb around in. I, round sort of Chobham, Sunningdale area, sort of West Berkshire. I'm, East Belcher I'm from, Yeah. Um, but sort of crossing into the Surrey borders. And uh, particularly I had a couple of friends who were big into triumphs and that got me going. But job wise, I, I left university in 1989 with a, you know, a hugely in demand degree in history and politics. You know, people were just throwing jobs at me.
0: Absolutely. yeah. Uh,
2: so after 106 or something uh, applications, um, I got drunk in the pub and uh, had a bet with my brother that I could get myself published in the sunday times i've no idea where the bet came from and uh, i went home and i i well drunk wrote out in half an hour that sort of you know they used to have a sort of day in the life back page and i wrote day in the life of a nice middle class well educated boy who left university in 1989 couldn't get a job anywhere had 106 applications out there and was still living with his parents and jobless and uh, little while later, I, a little while later I got a letter back saying "Oh, yeah we like your piece very much, uh, here's a cheque for 250 pounds. Mm. Happy days! So <laughs> I thought good God, so I got obviously being, well I was probably 22 at the time, uh, 22 maybe, 23, I, I obviously went 250 pounds per half hour, seven day week, <laughs> no five day week working seven and a half, eight hours a day, that's something like £850,000 a year, I'll do that. (laughs) And how did that work out? That didn't work out so well. Um, (laughs) So I knew nothing. I had no idea how to do anything. So what I did was I sent a little letter to my local papers, all of them, regardless of whether they were good, bad, indifferent, and only the ones that sort of commuting distance from my house. It never occurred to me to go further afield. It was so parochial. and I sent them a letter saying, oh, I've got this thing in the Sunday Times. Can I come and work for you? And uh, one of them said, yeah, all right. Well, they didn't. First of all, I had to go in. I did a few days test and I was awful, I really. It makes me cringe now to think about it. And then it clicked. I understood what tabloid journalism or a local evening newspaper was. And that was even worse. That made me cringe anymore. So I went from sort of feeling a bit above it all to writing about excited tots meeting Princess Di and this kind of thing and um, so I had a job in local newspapers and I became a crime correspondent, which was great fun. Um, just going
0: to sit in the local magistrate's court, did you? And-
2: there was a certain amount of sitting in the local magistrate's court. The best bit, though, was always getting to a crime scene before the police.
0: They hated
2: that so much and you could see their fury. And it was always other policemen who told you about it just to annoy the one who was the investigating officer. The, the, it was interesting getting to know the police on on that front, but I was a crime correspondent. I came out. I did a little bit of shifting in London on the nationals. At which point, I realised that was not
0: for me. Uh, you didn't meet Peter well when you were a crime correspondent, did you? Um, No, but, no. But no. just wondered. I was too good. To you, be m- you might have been caught. in the dock. In um,
2: Reading Magistrates Court. Magistrates
0: Court. have not do anything. Reading. where's that?
2: <laughs>
0: He's never been out of London. Right. Yeah, R-
2: is a satellite town that <laughs> likes to think it's near London. Um, well, it is now with Crossrail. Interesting. That's great. Great. What's well, it called? It the Elizabeth Line, on? isn't it? one of my first uh, scoops on the Reading Evening Post in probably 1982 was Crossrail imminent. And where are we now? Uh, Ninety-two. Thirty years later, it's actually happened. So, um, <laughs> I did a little bit of nationals. Went and worked for a contract publishing company, which wasn't exactly fulfilling work, but it was the bit that changed my career in the sense that it was very small, and I had to do everything. So I went from just being a reporter, you know, I had all the shorthand and everything, I could do all that business then, um, to sub editing, did everything else. And then I applied for a job at Haymarket, Uh, I think they wanted an editor of Sky Sports magazine. And I applied for that. And because I was rubbish at doing CVs, instead of putting, I'm really interested in Sky and sports at the bottom, I put hobbies and I went, oh, classic cars, totally obsessed with classic cars, got this, that, and the other, want this, that, and the other, blah, 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 blah. And then I got, I got a call from a guy called Steve Cropley who said, uh, I'm not going to try and do an Australian accent this summer. But he said, right, in on a, he did, he said, in on a, you shouldn't have either. Um, I know, that was it, that's more Australian. He and Gavin Conway got me in. Uh, did me an interview for um, chief sub editor, and that was it. I started at classing a sports car. Gavin left a year later, I became editor, then I did 20 odd years there, and then moved to Octane. So, in a nutshell? In well, a bloody big nutshell, wasn't it?
0: Sub editors. Before we started recording, we were talking about sub editors because, you know, I was at, at Haymarket. Yeah, well, I don't, would we have worked in the same office? Were you in Walder Road? No, no, Hampson Road. Not at that point. We were in Somerset House. Oh, okay, okay. Nostalgia. You love nostalgia. I like
2: you? a bit we of we, nostalgia. We are, this makes great podcast. You and me talking about buildings no one's ever heard of <laughs> yeah, in a town no
1: one's no, ever yeah. heard yeah. of. So, <laughs> so James, uh, something that I'm curious about is, I mean, we're often asked to talk about the market and, you know, what what's happening in the car world, and I've often felt myself, I mean, we're old enough to have, all of us are old enough to have lived through the... Uh, the 80s when there was this sort of huge boom in classic car prices and E-Type, V12, E-Type Jaguars were worth £200,000 and there was all these sort of crazy things going on. But at the time, there was also a boom in publishing. There were a number of titles that came on stream, really high quality, beautiful magazines. And then not long after we had a bit of a crash in the market, um, they disappeared. You've uh, Supercar Classics. For example, for yeah. example, Supercar of Classics. Of which I, I, I still... Quarterly. Uh, I have know? every issue. Me yeah, too. and it was a beautifully well, put actually, together do you magazine. you also have them? I do. So I we've do got a magazine
2: that is now knocking near, well, not 40 years old, but 35 years old. All three of the people in this room have every issue. Yeah. That's how
1: much of it It's a great point. You yeah. keep them um, because they are, you know, moments in time and they're beautifully put together and photographed. Um, but as a sort of taking the temperature of the market i often say to people it doesn't really matter in my mind prices will always fluctuate you know a car will go up and down in value different cars will be fashionable at a particular time we're seeing a you know a particular trend for i don't know late model ferraris and with low mileage etc but when you really want to look at what the what's happening in the classic car industry Go to Goodwood on the Friday of the Revival and try to buy a ticket on the gate. And if you can get one, there's a problem. You know, you can't. And it's exactly the same. And we've seen from, you know, the big financial crash in 2008. Mm -hmm. The magazine, the publishing industry, as far as the classic car world is concerned, seems to be in rude health. And it seems to be flourishing and has survived, you know, the ups and downs of the market over the last 10, 15 years. Um, Why do you think that is? I mean... I won't say it hasn't
2: been tough. Um, You know, all magazines, as as the many people who like to write and tell us that there's too many adverts in the magazine. (coughs) Mm. uh, Even though, as I like to write back and tell them, you get the same amount of editorial pages, however many adverts there are. If anything, if there's enough adverts, you'll get more editorial just so there's something for them to go in amongst. So um, we are dependent on advertising. It's a big bit of our revenues and, and the same for every other magazine. If the market is buoyant, people are advertising more. If the market is on its knees, funnily enough, quite often people advertise more. It's the sort of in between times, like at the moment, Yeah. you know, it's very easy for us. We don't, believe it or not, despite many people's perception of Octane, we very rarely talk about value. And we very, very rarely talk about rising markets, bull markets and bear markets and that kind of thing, um, because Editorially, we don't think that prices and values should command people's interest in cars. I know there are people out there for whom it does. But for those people, they don't need to know what the price or the value is or what the market is from a magazine point of view. We just we're just focused on the cars. We love the cars. We get on with that. We're not likely, none of our staff are likely to be going to an auction and buying a four or five million pound car. But the magazines, and it was possibly easier from my classic and sports car days. If when you've got a bull market, it's whoa, everything's great, the cars going up. Here's what you can buy. When you when the market's crashing, it's great. Everyone can buy more cars cheaper. And, <laughs> well, yeah, no, but I mean, yeah. my
1: point my point's a different one in in the sense that if you go back to the late eighties, when for example, supercar classics came on the scene, yep. quarterly, beautifully uh, produced but it didn't survive. It didn't survive the crash in the market. Yep. And you know, at that time, prices went up and fell off a cliff very quickly. Yep. And we've had that sort of nervousness ever since. You know, what's happening in the market? You know, are we going to see a sort of re, re, uh, repeat of that late 80s crash? But at it's that, every 10 and, and years. now, but the point now, James, is we have an alternative online. But the magazines, despite what the market trends have done up and down, fluctuating mm-hmm. in terms of value, the magazines have all survived and survived really well. And yeah. I think it's really curious, and and uh, in a time when you have that opportunity to go read your you know classic car features online, but people are still buying print media, and and and, and I see that Peter as a barometer of the market. I see it as a, mm-hmm. as a way of saying, look, the market is in good health if people still buy magazines when they get on a flight buy a copy of Octane magazine and aspire to own in the classic car based on good journalism, great features. They aspire to go and do the Mille Miglia or do a mm-hmm. Concours or compete at Goodwood or Silverstone. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's what really, for, for me personally, what underpins our marketplace. It's not a question of whether, whatever it might be, uh, an E-Type's worth 50,000 or 250,000. It's yeah. a question of aspiration.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think...
2: There will always be aspiration.
1: We would be remiss to
2: not mention and acknowledge the fact that the entire print magazine market has had a really, really tough time. And yes, because of online developments, it is in decline. For many, many sectors, it's in terminal decline. We've got a reprieve because of what we deal with and the mindset of the people who are interested in that. Mm. In the, you know, I'm sure that. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure the sort of the model railway magazines are still doing all right mm. and various other things with, that deal with a subject matter that has a certain mindset for which a print magazine and, and luxuriating in that
1: and, and immersing yourself in that is worthwhile. And So, your point is that the type of person that buys a classic car magazine is, and, and, and maintains a classic car or aspires to own a classic car. Is the per- type of person that still has a sense of nostalgia for print media, and that that so, you yeah. know the two things mm-hmm. are harmonious in that sense.
2: And to take it back to the sort of the vinyl record point, it's yeah. it's a quality of product. It's you know not all of the internet is sort of clickbait and buy it high, sell it cheap, and get through everything in two minutes, but a lot of it is. And here's something that unashamedly and unabashedly says. We want you to sit on your bog or in your comfy chair or wherever for three hours minimum and sit here and isolate yourself from the rest of the world and enjoy this because it is pandering to your interests and your hobbies. And there are still enough people out there who go, "Yeah, that's that's what I want to do." Well, and, no, I mean, well, and, it, and
0: it's exactly why books like this are still being published. Yeah, you know,
1: I mean, you know, because people buy them, and they want to read them. But it fulfills senses as well. It's exactly the same uh, point about a classic car. It's not a question of just getting in and drive. It smells great. It feel it. You know, the touch is yeah. great. It sounds great. Um, you know, there are there are these senses that are fulfilled that you can't necessarily f- fulfill in the same way in the digital world. I mean, a, a magazine has a smell. It has a touch. It has a sound. Exactly. It has all those senses, and there's something about that which I don't think just brings out nostalgia, but it. It's just more complete as, a, as an experience. And and without wanting to bang on about it, this, I think, is the importance of what more and more
2: sort of charities and other things are doing now, is we will never fully indoctrinate youngsters into these cars without letting them drive them. If they go there in a, in a, a modern do-everything-for-them car, they may get in a, in a classic car or a vintage car even, or even a veteran car, and it may do nothing for them. But there's going to be a number, a good number, where that level of involvement, that level of control, that level of a car being much more than just a white good to get them from A to B will trigger something mm. and the, so we need to get as many kids into old cars actually driving them, let them experience the old cars as possible in order to sort of um, propagate the next generation and the generation after that.
1: Seeing, I mean, your love of music, and as you say, Peter, your your eldest son is a musician, loves playing guitar. Um, I, I, like you, collect vinyl. Mm. I love the experience of putting on a vinyl record and having mm. that sort of full immersion, taking my time, listening to it, knowing that I can't flick through the tracks. I have to sit down and listen to it. I have to keep getting up and moving the needle. And, 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 and I think it's similar in the music world. I mean, there was a point, I guess, in the 80s where... Music was being produced very digitally and there were lots of bands just creating things via a computer But mm. people still play instruments. People mm. still want to beat the drum. They still want to play the piano They yeah. probably don't need to they probably don't need to and it's, it's kind of that Experience of driving an old car as well You, yeah. you, you, you can recreate these experiences, but there's nothing quite like that um, tangible uh, impact you get from sitting behind a drum kit or a piano or, or exactly. strumming a gi- guitar or driving a manual old banger—it's—it's tangible a good word. It's also
2: emotional, yeah. and and it's the involvement. If you think about it, if if you'd decided to drive over here in in say your E Type today, the whole process of doing that journey in an E Type. Breaking down three times. Oh, yeah. Getting up.
1: Old car batteries hate the cold weather, don't <laughs> having, they? <laughs> having
2: that mixture between being far too hot in the cockpit, but the fact that it's still completely covered in condensation and you can't see anything. Mm. Having all these things, it's actually quite a masochistic experience. But it's rewarding in a way that driving a modern car is not rewarding. I mean, driving modern cars is absolutely fine. I drive them on. Well, my youngest car is now 20 years old, but. I drive modern cars and I go from somewhere to somewhere else and I get out feeling fairly refreshed and I've listened to the radio and the heat has been nice that's great I've got no beef with that whatsoever but until people who've driven an old car regardless of that masochistic side of it and the breaking down and you know the challenge of just getting home not having to call the AA is what is one of the great things that I think we all share even you know you would I would spend hours by the side of the road before calling the AA? Before a. calling the AA. Yeah, because that's admitting defeat, isn't it? Uh, it's probably much more sensible to do it most of the time. And, but that's... Have you that ever
1: tried finding a spare wheel in a modern car? all you don't it, have, it's, have them. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's if got one. And this, uh, you know, how do you undo these wheel nuts? That's you need a safe... Code or it's something. A code,
0: right? It's yeah. a kind of uh, it's hair foam, isn't it? It's some sort of <laughs> yeah. stuff my mum put on her hair in the eighties. <laughs> You're absolutely right about in terms of young people getting interested. They have got to drive these cars, but and but what I wanted to go back to. I mean, there are some magazines you mentioned. Um, practical Classics earlier. Brilliant magazine. That's a magazine it. that is very much focused on, you know, let's call it the the slightly more budget end, uh, and it's about how you work on a car, how you maintain mm. it, how you keep it on the road. Brilliant, and then of course there are we we've talked about supercar classics, and that was very aspirational. And mm-hmm. you might get a you know a nice eight-page feature on a Type Fifty Seven Bugatti or whatever. And of course there are very few readers who are ever going to be lucky enough to own a Type Fifty Seven or mm-hmm. a GT Forty or a short wheelbase or whatever it is. Um, so I mean, Octane has always. Uh, Been at the premium end, and in Hmm. terms of the the focus of the editorial, but it's sort of in the middle. You know, it does cater for um, people that don't have a few million quid to spend on a car, or even a few hundred thousand pounds to spend on a car. So, how when you are putting an issue together, how do you kind of create that mix between the aspirational stuff that ninety-nine point nine percent of your readership are are never going to be lucky enough to own or drive? Um, and, and sort of the other, and, and, and the other end of the market. Where do you pitch it? Uh, there is, there is a, You do sort of take uh, a helicopter view
2: of the content and say we need to have something for everyone in this magazine in that, you know, you can't fill it solely with Type 57s every month, otherwise a load of people are gonna go, there's nothing for me in that. Yeah. You can't equally fill it solely with Trump Spitfires. Because there's a bunch of people going, there's nothing for me in that. But more than that, what drives us is the fact that they can read about trans spitfires anywhere. And they do, month in, month out. And we've had, and I would like to think some people have noticed, we've had quite a distinctive change in our content policy. Which is, yes, we try and make sure that we cover various different value levels. But the value never commands the content. and. Um, what we, We've talked a lot about the maturity of the classic car market, the fact that there's lots of magazines, whether they're quarterlies or monthlies, they're all very well established, they've all got very fixed readerships. When I joined Octane, what we perceived, and here I'm using we because if it's a bad thing, I, it's collective blame, but I really mean I if it's a good thing. Obviously. Uh, and, it, and there's credit to be had somewhere along the line. We looked, and we saw that Three of the magazines were very close together at that point in that they were all doing bargain Porsche, biggest bargain Porsche, 10 great sports cars to buy this summer. And they'd got into a not I I wouldn't say it was a rut, but they'd got into a space where they were all selling very well and very professionally doing the same things over and over again with a bit of variety each issue. And what we sat down with Octane and went, I sat down in our editorial meeting and I turned to Mark Dixon, who's been in this game even longer than me, and I turned to Glenn Wardington, who's been in it almost as long, and the rest of the team, who've also been in it for years, and Robert Coocher, of course, also. And said, so, what is it we find boring? And what we find boring is reading the same stories over and over again, because some of us have been reading classic cold magazine since 1973, some since 82, um, some since more recently. but." we all felt we'd read pretty much everything several times over. The generalist stories. We also decided that most back-to-back comparisons were a waste of time. They might have had some value when those cars were brand new, and they were out of the factory, and you could put a car against a car. But 50 years on, it's, that's not reflective of what those cars are. That's reflective mm. of how well they've been maintained. Yeah, yeah or what state they are in the cycle of being restored to needing restoring again. And so we try to more or less eliminate those and then we try to say in in the content whatever cars we put in are not going to be things that you've read before. Yes there's bound to be lapses in that. But much more we want something which either is a car nobody's heard of, a variation on a car that nobody's heard of, a car with a backstory that nobody's heard of that is interesting, or a car itself, or the car's owner has a backstory that's interesting and nobody's heard of. And that's what we want. So basically, mm. if you've been reading classic car magazines for 40 years, we want to serve you content that is actually fresh to somebody who might have become jaded,
1: who's been reading them that long, because that is our editorial team, that's who we are and that's how we feel. I think the other thing Octane did that I personally noticed when it first came out is—is is it did also have a bit of a nod to other categories, not just cars. Well, I can't it, take you know, any had, credit for that, but I will. But it, yeah, but it—it it did say, look, let's read, let have a bit page on watches, page or, page or watches of, you know, or. boats, or whatever it might be, racehorses, cigars. Yeah. I don't know. There was a there was a there was a point to it which said, okay, we're going to have a couple of pages in here to cover. Cover, cover other interest areas which relate to cars or collectability mm-hmm. or connoisseurship mm-hmm. or any of those things. And I always thought that Octane stood out for that reason, personally. It's a strange one because we, do, we obviously do a lot of reader
2: research. And what you find when you come to those elements of the magazine is that they are more polarising than anything else. Right. So if you say, here are our columnists, we've got Jay Leno, Derek Bell, Stephen Bailey, and Robert Kutcher, we say, how do you feel about them? And there's a sort of, there's a a median line and it's sort of up, down, up, down like that. If you say, how do you feel about the fact that we dedicate two pages every month to watches? And you'll see that it's like that. There is no middle ground. Hmm. People either despise it and don't want it, or they love it and think that it's a crucial part of the magazine. Personally, I think that it fits into this mantra of trying to present new and different and interesting. We just want to interest people. Yeah. And we have a page called Icon, where it could be absolutely anything from a, from a stagger-wing aircraft mm. to um, Corona Pop we did mm. recently, mm. which was actually an article that Delwyn Mallet submitted in 2020 and we had to hold for three years until the virus had gone because mm. we, of people's sensibilities about it. it's it's all about interest if people are going to invest you know a significant amount of money but you're knocking on 6 quid for a magazine they not they we have a duty to entertain and present yeah. them with stuff where they where that, their appetite is satisfied satisfied and that's our job
1: but I, th- I mean, I think the other great thing is that the columnists you've just mentioned, Robert, obviously was involved well, from, of from I day it. one. big selling
2: point. Excellent columnist.
1: <laughs> 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 Hi, Robert. How are you doing, um, Derek? Uh, yeah. You know uh, uh, the, the others that you mentioned, Stephen, ba- Stephen Bailey, and Jay Leno. They've been, you know, supporting and providing those columns for what many, many years. And many that, years. It's I- that consistency as well. that I think is yeah. really crucial. So I remember James your classic your classic and sports
0: car days r m um, had consigned a two hundred fifty gto mm. oh, well, as it it turns out it didn't it ended up by not coming to auction yeah but you'll remember the occasion of course uh, I will. <laughs> the, one, the one and the one and only time I've ever driven a 250, a two fifty gto was mm. was when we did the 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 feature but what was i think what was interesting about that was that obviously the Mag were, were happy to have the feature, and that was all great. I don't think you put it on the cover. Oh, we did. But not. it wasn't the main... Yeah, the, it was, the, it. The, was, was it? Yeah. Uh, a a GT, you
2: were talking earlier about some cars and the repetition. To my mind, there are some cars that you always do if the opportunity is there. You know, if somebody rang me up and offered me a Bugatti Atlantic, it doesn't matter if we've done one six months earlier, you're going to take the opportunity. And a GTO is, is one of those cars that falls into the same class. I mean, I remember that day extremely well.
0: It was bitterly cold. We were out on Shoebury Ness. That's right, yeah. It, yes, it was on the cover. It, it's always felt to me like within the classic car media, if you put a big multi-million Pound euro car on the front cover Mm -hmm. that's not actually what sells the magazine if you if you put an e-type on the front cover which has obviously got a a wider appeal because there are more people out there that own them and can afford to buy them that that's actually going that's going to sell more copies or is that wrong
2: no that's absolutely right
0: yeah if all you were interested in was that
2: one month selling the most copies of a magazine that you possibly could You would put E types and MGBs on every month. Yeah, it's interesting. Both of which I've owned. However, Uh, yeah, I won't say I'm not interested in selling magazines because that would be that would be career suicide. But we are trying to do a different thing. You know, earlier I said that we were trying to make a magazine for the people who'd read it all before. We feel there is a market that will last forever. There is a group of people who will want to buy these magazines forever. And there's another group of people who might buy these magazines now, but if if it becomes a bit tougher to own and use a classic car, they might desert us quite quickly. And I would like to have sewn up those people who are so dedicated that they've been reading magazines for 30 or 40 years, and they will be a classic car enthusiast regardless. Come hell or high water, they will find a way. And though, I want all of them to be Octane readers and mm. Octane is is being focused very much for those people, which is why we've only put an E-Type on the cover once in five years, whereas most magazines it'll be once, maybe twice a year. We've put the Autobahn Courier on the cover. We put that uh, prototype Alfa Romeo with a separate prototype engine. We put that on the cover. We put a Porsche 917 on the cover with an overhead shot. We're trying mm. to do different. We're, we're trying to break the routine of classic coal magazines. And there is inevitably a routine. It's not a criticism, because these things have been, you know, when you do an auction, there is a way you do an auction and a way everyone does an auction. And it's quite hard to break that cycle. Hmm. And I see people do things to break that cycle with the auctions. And we're trying to do the same thing with the magazine, we're trying to be a bit different, a bit more creative, a bit less obvious. And we're just trying to not solely grasp an extra 2,000 readers in that one month. We want to grasp an extra thousand for forever. And that's why we're trying to put more interest. That's an
1: interesting point. I was going to ask that actually. I mean, I guess in the publishing world is obviously repeat business is hugely important as it is in every business. But how much of your emphasis is all about grabbing you know, the attention for that one month, you know, the August edition where everyone's going on holiday and you're thinking everyone's going to complain, they're going to buy a classic car magazine. You know, do you, there, there must be peaks and troughs as well in the way the, the, the editions um, oh, feet, get sea- out there. There must be some cycles, I guess.
2: It's really seasonal.
1: Yeah. There are yeah.
2: times of the year where... Less so than previously. 20 years ago, it was totally seasonal. You could say there were three months of the year where it was completely dead because nothing happened, basically, between Goodwood and Retromobile.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And the whole market sort of stopped and died and all the historic car, all the race cars went off to be prepped for, for the next season. People didn't buy, people didn't sell. The whole thing slowed down. Now, it is a year-round thing.
1: Well, as, as you a field, I think our, our industry as well. I mean, you know, events, you, you know, we've just come back from events in the Middle East. Yeah. Retromobile kicks off the new year, Arizona, it, it, I, I think the you more you're, you're immersed in this industry, yeah. the more it becomes a global industry as opposed to just a sort of what's happening in the UK at any given time. It, mm. it, it becomes actually, it's not just about what's happening in the UK, it's what's happening globally.
2: It is much mm. more global and it and it's much less seasonal in the sense that it, it is now 365 days a year. It mm. doesn't stop. Mm. You don't get that little sort of Parliament being out of session.
1: Yeah, be, no, between no, no, between no. auctions. No, no, no. Same for us no. with auctions. Yeah. I mean, once, once you know we would have uh, a specific season and, and specific times of the year that were busy and peaks. But now it just feels like it's full twelve months of the year. No. And then the three
2: of us sit here and we have the gall to complain about it when we get to live that three hundred and sixty five days a year. So I'm not going to complain. I think mm. it's great. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Bring it on as yeah. much of it as possible. I love it.
0: Now, James. So we talked quite a lot about. We're going to talk about cars. Yeah, you know, we talked a lot about magazines and publishing, and that's brilliant. James, the car lover enthusiast, Mm. what do you like? That could be. It's not necessarily what you own, even, but what Mm. you know. What is the what sort of stuff turns you on?
2: Classic classics. I don't really get modern a lot of modern classics. I think that might develop over time, but at the moment, pretty much anything post mid eighties to me, I don't <coughs> understand.
0: Um, mm-hmm. That's I'll, interesting. And just pause there, because that's kind of where the zeitgeist is at the moment, isn't it? In, yeah. In, 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 <laughs> yeah. Exactly. How in, have in, I still got a job? <laughs> well, no. It, it, it. But in a way, I'm a bit. I'm kind of with you in, in so much as a lot of the stuff that people are getting very excited about at auction are cars that you know and i have said it i've said it once before i think i said it on a podcast it, you know they were cars that were parked in supermarket car parks when you know 20, yeah. year, 20 30 years ago and and it's quite it can be hard. as
1: were D-types in the 60s yeah
0: it, but it, but it's hard i think for people of a of, of a certain age to to sort of view cars that were just more or less everyday Spots on the road, yeah. um, you, you know, twenty or thirty years ago, and recontextualize them as the, these highly desirable collector's cars, which they clearly are. And and I know it's you know we're not really talking about Ford Sierras at the moment. We're talking about you know some some you know special stuff, AMG Mercs and Alpina BMWs, whatever but there's they might still be. Still some
2: insanity in some of the prices. There's the, mm. some I can see. You know, if you get something like the wide body Merc, and you can sort of say, okay. In numbers, that is a very small production run. In mileage, very few low mileage cars, that's special. If we look at some other things and you sort of see cars that are not exactly 10 a dozen, but not that rare, not one-off, not not worth putting in a carcoon and waiting 20 years. They don't have an investment value. How are people paying, and I'm thinking of one of yours from Munich in particular, £250,000 for something I can go and buy a really nice one of which, to me, has the same collectability and desirability for 50. Mm.
1: Mm.
2: And that can't be an investor paying that kind of money for that, because
0: no investor would make that insane a decision. So in a way, yeah, that's, that's definitely a positive, not a tra- thing. It's not a trade purchase, that, for sure. No. Um, um, no, no. It's, it, it is a very, it's, I suppose that's a bit off topic. The, the Young yeah. Timer Markets is, 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 a, is a thing, and it's probably a podcast in its own right, really. Um, not for me. But not for you. <laughs> no, no. Not, not no. to have me on it. it would be a very short I do, podcast. I do
1: think, though, it, it, it's common for all of us, probably, as you immerse yourself, uh, if you can call this a hobby, whatever your passion. I mean, personally, I, I first wanted to get into the classic car world because I liked chrome and spinners and wire wheels, and mm. that, for me, represented a classic car or something that you know wasn't your run-of-the-mill everyday Ford mm. Granada. Um But I think the more time you spend in it, the deeper you go into it and right now, you know i I really would love to own a pre war car. I really would love to own and and have that driving experience and I think even the guys buying you know as you say young timers today, if they get into this, and that 's what I love about the the events, the magazines, the au- live auction experiences, they, they, they get infected by others. They, they start yeah. to sort of take on their enthusiasm and say, hey, have you ever done the Mille Have you ever done the Flying Scotsman? Have you ever done this race meeting at you know, Goodwood? And, 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 and some will just drop off and, and never come back to this. Yeah. Others will become immersed in it. And I do think they will go deeper into the subject. But this is the
2: bizarre thing, isn't it? And I think we all experience this. We work backwards. Yeah, in exactly. I got into it with 60s cars. Yeah. And then from 60s cars, instead of going, I want 70s cars and 80s no, cars, go the I'm way. going, I want 50s cars yeah. and I want pre war cars. And then pre wars, next thing you know, you end up doing the Brighton run. Well, hmm. it,
1: exactly that. And that, that's the point I'm making. I, I do think the buyer of a 90s or a 2000s car today. Some will attend a few events, go to a Concours, and be in, and some will just say, hey, no, I'm not interested. But there will be a group of them that say, actually, no, I'm really quite attracted by the look of that car from the 70s or the, whatever yeah. it is. And uh, you do go backwards, exactly that. What's interesting is
2: if you contrast what I own from what I drive for the magazine... Maybe it's because I can live my life vicariously through other people's cars, and Mm. I get to experience lots of cars that I don't have to fork out money for. In the magazine, you can very clearly see that working backwards. Mm. And everything I sort of drive now seems to be sort of either 50s at the earliest, probably pre-war with the odd veteran thrown in. And And certainly I'm ticking a lot of boxes on vintage stuff. In my life though, I keep buying 60s cars it's mm. always been 60s cars um not exclusively but that's what i keep buying i've just bought another car and it's another 60s car so mm. Mm. i don't know why maybe i was born in 68 and i've always been a kind of nostalgia focused person anyway um, you know i always liked older music than the current music
0: and maybe it's the same thing but I don't know. It's always a scene. It's in, and it's interesting going going back to young timers. You like that it,
1: with hairstyles, aren't you? Yeah. You're
0: still a new romantic. <laughs> I think you're an old romantic. <laughs> an now. old romantic. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, '60s cars. Bit of a generalisation, but there's a, there's a lot of aesthetic beauty in '60s cars. It was it was it was a decade. I mean, there were in the, there wasn't the '50s as well. But, um, and then as you kind of Move towards the 80s and the 90s, and when we start talking about young timers in particular, you know, there's nothing uh, aesthetically beautiful about a lot of those cars. In fact, they're quite big, square, boxy, brutal yep. bits of metal, and I, that has an appeal all of its own. But it's but that's what drives collectors to want to buy certain things is often underpinned by something. Uh, sorry, that's my phone. Can
1: we underpin. have a separate podcast to define beauty then? Well. Of course, because beauty is in the eye of the whole of. But Perhaps
0: it's in
2: the, the 60s was really the last era where design was purely a- aesthetic. You created something beautiful and you had the lack of legislation yeah. to build that. And you just put it on your chassis and you built it to your dimensions. And that's how you get something like the short wheelbase. Even in the seventies or the eighties, you couldn't have built, you couldn't have yeah. styled the short wheelbase and then built it and put it on the roads and sold it. Yeah. So maybe that's the sixties, as it was in music, was a was a real sort of high point before legislation and common sense <laughs> stepped in to sort of stop things being done
0: with no regulation whatsoever. Yes, and, and racing cars changed. You know, look how a Formula One car shifted from you know completely unadorned no wings n- yeah. n- n- no no ground effect no nothing as they were you know right the way back pre-war through to the 60s and yeah. then all of a sudden they started sprouting wings and they suddenly became uh, not things of beauty they were just they were functional you know it was it was yeah. all about aerodynamics and and uh, you know that's a different thing but it's why it's kind of hard to look at a mid 70s formula 1 car and view that as something... But we, we're wired differently. In the yeah. By your criteria there, all the, you know,
2: a Lotus 72 isn't a thing of great beauty, but it clearly is. But then yeah, how much of yeah. that does it owe to the livery? Mm. And for the same reason a Matra V12. A Matra V12 to most people is probably a pretty unpleasant sound, a bit like a siren. To anyone with a passion for cars or a bit of enthusiasm or petrol in their blood, that is the best sound in the
1: world. Mm. What is it about the Jensen Interceptor that appeals to you so much? I get to tell... There is an anecdote I've
2: told about this Jensen Interceptor since approximately four hours after buying it, and I've got so much mileage out of it over the years that if there is one person listening to your podcast who hasn't read it or heard it somewhere, I'll be surprised. But
1: Well, we've got some strange listeners, it's okay.
2: <laughs> and presenters. <laughs> True. Actually, that's a little too rude, I'll you that one. Um, I've always liked the Jensen. It's all about the rear window. When I was a kid, I saw a Jensen go past, I thought this thing was a spaceship with that goldfish bowl rear window. And it went past effortlessly at a very, very high speed. Mm. And that just made an impression on me. Price, when I bought my Jensen, you could still go out and buy it. You could have bought probably the best Mark I Jensen in the world for under 10 grand. Mm. Crazy, yeah. Um, Mine was three and a half grand. I could afford to buy one. You know, the American V8, the GT Tour, it also fitted into a set I had. I had, a, at the time, I had a four-door straight-six executive saloon and a two-door soft-top uh, four-pot sports car. So a V8 2 plus 2 GT completed that set really right. nicely, gave right. me a, a car for every occasion. Anyway, I had we had our first. I had to had an incredibly impractical thing called a Piper P two. Yeah. In, incredibly impractical. I don't know if I said that, but it, it wasn't very practical. Like you had to take the rear seat, the seats out to get to the, the spare wheel, because it had a, a rear canopy that didn't open, um, and it had a removable roof panel for everything else, because the windows didn't open either. Um, it's great fun though, huge fun. Possibly got a bit more attention than I wanted. Anyway, I sold that. And then myself and my wife had our first child and I said, I took the money from the piper and I said, I'm going to go and buy us a nice practical four-seat family hatchback. And I came back with the Jensen. (laughs) Well,
0: I I mean, they... It normally gets a better reaction than that. No. (laughs) You've heard it before. uh, What I... I, No, I haven't. I hadn't heard the story before, actually, but I don't know if it's the the precise appeal of the car, because you were talking about the rear window, but when you put... One of those big, chunky, reliable, lazy, American lumps in in a sort of a, a European or Italian design. I mean, do, I love Panteras. I love the Tomaso yeah. Panteras. I mean, I'm not sure I'd particularly want to own one because I'm not sure that that wouldn't be a particularly easy car to live with. But it just ticks all the boxes because it just looks mega. And there's this fundamentally reliable, powerful... Power plant in it, which is sort of free from all of the anxiety that uh, a, 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 you know a V tw- a, an Italian V12 generates if you, you know when you're trying to look after one at least on a budget. If Pantera's another go, they're much easier to live with than
2: you think. It's all about which one, like many things in, in the old car world, it's like which one you drive. I drove a Pantera probably in about 2002. And it was one that a guy who didn't have a lot of money had bought the cheapest Pantera he could find. And, you know, it wasn't great. It was nice, but I drove it. It it instantly killed all my aspirations to be a Pantera owner. Mm. And um, probably 10, 12 years after that, I drove another one, which was a freshly restored car, exactly as it would have come out of the factory. And it was love at first sight. But unfortunately, the prices had tripled. Mm. then, mm. so it was no longer an option. But it's the same with E-types. I drove a lot of bad E-types before I drove a good one. And the first three or four E-types I drove, I had no idea what the fuss was all about. And then I got one freshly rebuilt from the E-type centre. We picked it up. It had literally been finished and run in within days. We picked it up, we took it to Kerbera Sprint Track and we took it round there all day and it was Kerbera wasn't much great, good for it, because it's too big for Kerbera really. But on the journey from the E-Type Centre to Kerbera and back again, it was absolutely electrifying. And, that, that, you know, I, I was blind and I could see. It just completely opened my eyes to how good E-Types were and why they had such an impact on the world. Because there was a period where there were so many bad ones
0: around, and Panteras mm. and I think mm. there's
2: probably now a lot less bad examples of nice cars around than there used to be. Which is also well.
0: I mean, I think the the one positive outcome of values going up in the way that they have is that there is way more justification behind spending the money on a restoration on lower value cars than than there ever was. I used to have a three six five GTC four Ferrari, and I had an amazing one, but it's really hard to find an amazing one because they're one of those sort of broadly unloved Ferraris Mm -hmm. that. Where the values have been pegged, yep. and no one's ever, and they're really expensive to restore. Yep. So you got it's a big leap of faith to throw the money at it that you would need to throw in order to end up with a really lovely one. But increasingly, you are people are doing that because the values of those cars have crept up, and you're yep. beginning to see nice ones come through again. And 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 but so that's that's a positive thing, isn't it? Well, it is apart from your regret at selling. Oh well, yeah, I know, but that's <laughs> now the that value. If we had, a, we could do another episode of this about all the regrets we've got. Thank you very much for joining us, James. Thank you for having me. Thanks you. Thank you for getting on a bus on a train strike day to come to Richmond. Uh, I made less effort than others. Yeah, Pete, you 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 did. You did. I, I don't want to dwell on your... Um, no, don't dwell you on know, it. He no, no. started on, with it, on, we might as well finish it. the appalling way doesn't... he chose to spend his night last yeah. night and the, the hour that he went to bed. The word but, reprobate is springing to mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for... Not you know, very much is springing to mind.
1: <laughs>
0: thank you for, you know, not going to bed and basically coming straight from, No, no, I, uh, changed central, my, I changed my top. Uh, well, thank, thank you for that as well. Um, so thank you very much my pleasure and thank you everyone who are listening or watching this podcast uh, this latest episode of the car show and please join us next time for another fun packed and thoroughly interesting episode